Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning, North Bible. Hey, my name is Adam, and I'm the pastor of students and young adults, and it is so good to be here together with you, worshiping together. Uh, man, first service this morning, we had our first mask mandatory service. I just have to tell you, I was blown away just with the number of uh, people here, the families that felt comfortable coming back to church together. I kind of joked with them that, you know, the first experience coming through those doors, you probably experienced it, and just feeling that weight of everything that happened, and just such an emotional time to be in this room and worship together. I remember having my mask on and glasses fogging up a little bit, gratefully, because I was crying, no one else could see me, but just a uh, emotional, like impactful time together. And so I don't know if you can recall that feeling when you walked in these doors. Maybe you felt that in the cafe this morning as well as we opened up the cafe for the first time. But it's been like 365 days since, uh, since the last time my kids were here in this, in this building on a Sunday. And so just what, a, what an awesome, awesome Sunday. Um, grateful to be together. I kind of joked with the first service, like, not a great way to start off the sermon, talking about how, like, these other things are way more super impactful, potentially, than, uh, than what I'm going to share. But maybe uh, God has something to share with you this morning as we continue in our series in the book of James. Uh, we're in week nine now, and we're going to be in chapter four, verses 13 through 17, getting clarity in an unclear world. And all through the past nine weeks, as Jay's been preaching and Wes, we've been talking about the different themes that you see in the book of James. And one that I want to focus on, because we're going to hit it hard uh, this morning, is the idea, and Jay said this in week one, beliefs and actions go hand in hand. Beliefs and actions go hand in hand. As Christians, we want to practice what we preach. We learn something about God and we put it into practice, right? It's this idea of orthodoxy, which is right belief, that goes together with orthopraxy, which is right living. And James, you know, early on, chapter 1, says, Do not merely listen to the Word, but do what it says. And so this morning, we're going to be challenged to do something. We're going to be challenged to put this into practice. The question that we've kind of been circling around, I want us to ask ourselves this morning, is this. Do you understand how God is calling you to live today? Do you understand what He is calling you to do in our world, in our workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our schools? The cool thing about James is that it's in our Bible and God has given this to us to give us clarity, even though so many things around us in our world provide just more confusion and more uncertainty and more frustration. This is what biblical scholar Craig Blomberg says about James. He said, Perhaps no other New Testament document as pointedly demonstrates the contrast between biblical and nominal Christianity. The contrast between biblical Christianity and nominal Christianity. Are you living out what God has called you 
to do? Are you a biblical Christian or is it just you say you're a Christian, but nobody could tell otherwise? Wes kind of summarized this entire book well when he spoke in week five. He said, James is simply calling God's people to act like God's people. And so in our passage this morning, James chapter 4, 13 through 17, James is going to introduce to us a problem that all of us encounter in our Christian walk. He's going to explain to us why that problem is a reality in our world today. But he's also going to introduce a solution, how we can apply God's word to our lives and act on that, put it into practice. So let's open up God's word, James 4, 13 through 17. You can read along with me. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. It's a nice little four-point plan there. But James says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. And as we're coming off of last week's sermon, the early part of James chapter 4, Jay was preaching about uh, judging others. That's what James was writing about in the verses that lead right up to this passage. And so if the problem in that passage was judging others, this idea of playing God, the problem in today's passage is ignoring God. This idea that we are tempted in our arrogance, in our broken humanity, our sinful nature, to presume to know and or to control what our future holds. That's the problem that's introduced here. You can read what it says right in that first verse, verse 13. James is addressing people who are planning selfishly. They've ignored the Lord in their planning. Now listen, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and profit. And so, as James is focusing this passage on believers who disregard the Lord and are planning, this is a common problem. This isn't just for people back then or people out there. This is for all of us. And so, I want us to be all on the same page here. We're all guilty of doing this. And James is presenting to us this problem as a warning as a wake-up call to Christians and saying, are you listening? Are you ready to hear how God wants to convict you? Because when God wants to convict you, he wants to grow you. And so this idea that I kept coming across in every commentary that I read this week, the problem of presumption. What does it mean to presume things? And how does that affect our relationship with God? There's a difference between presuming something and assuming something. I always thought they were pretty similar, but I did a little digging this week. When you assume something, you kind of take for granted something that's going to happen in the future, but you don't know why. You don't really have any proof or evidence or reason. We all do that, too. We're like, 
what did you just do? That was so dumb. Why'd you do that? And you're like, I don't know. I just kind of assumed that, you know, fill in the blank. It's like, that was my bad. I shouldn't have assumed. There was nothing that, you know, happened before that gave me reason to believe why this should happen going forward. But presuming does have that implication of something in the past. Maybe it's a, a previous belief, a previous experience, having previous knowledge that we can extrapolate into the future and say, okay, this has happened before, or I know this to be true, and so I can expect that to happen tomorrow. You guys might be familiar with the famous quote, David Livingston, I presume. It's like this, uh, this Scottish Christian, the Scottish missionary that was in Africa, and he was lost for like over four years and when someone found him, like those were the famous words, David Livingston, I presume. And so this person had some prior knowledge of a white guy lost in Africa. When he comes across him, then you can presume that this is probably the person that is lost. Well, how does this affect our relationship with God? This, this problem of presumption. Because James calls out people who presume things about their future. It says, when you plan out, you know, the details of the future, where you're going to go, for how long you're going to go there, what you're going to do there, and it's like this magical formula that spits out profit at the end, that is a massive presumption. For Christians, the problem is that, is that we know God's sovereignty. We know he is all-powerful. He's in control. But sometimes we make these decisions without him. We ignore God in our decision-making process. It's this idea of selfish planning that this is going to work out for me, so I'm going to pursue that. As Christians, we're tempted to do that, put ourselves first, and kind of push God into the margins of our life. But the Bible has a lot to say about this problem, selfish planning. In Psalms chapter 2, starting in verse 1, it says, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. This idea that, that people are tempted to make plans against God, not a good idea, the psalmist says. In our passage, making plans, ignoring God, also not a good idea. These plots, these plans are in vain. In the book of Luke, Jesus shares a parable that has to do with selfish planning. This is a good wake-up call for all of us here today. Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 16, And Jesus told them this parable, The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, This is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. 
But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus summarizes this parable. He concludes by saying, this is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. You can see this man who thought he was being wise and planning for his future, but it's foolishness because of his selfish planning. Did not include God in his plans. And, and so J- Jesus is saying in this parable that wealth is not a sin in and of itself. But what is sinful was the greed that happened here, the complacency that happened here, the self-sufficiency, and not being generous with others. This idea of what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his very soul? And so as we think about selfish planning, we think about this problem that James introduces, we ask ourselves, what do I make of this problem in, our own, in my own life? How do I see this temptation of selfish planning play out in my own life? Are you pushing God to the margins in your decision-making process? Are you making plans without consulting God? Maybe it's just you have this great, great desire to control everything, and when you cannot control what happens tomorrow, you take that out on God. If that's the problem, James tells us why it's the problem in verse 14. And the reality of our situation, the reality of our world is that our future is unclear to us, but it's clear only to God. He says in verse 14, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a while and then vanishes. This is the cold hard truth of of the world that we live in. You and I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. If you need any proof of that, just rewind, you know, one year ago when we all had these awesome plans in 2020, and then everything went poof, up in smoke. Our life is a mist. It's a vapor. It's like smoke. When you compare that to the God that we serve, almighty, unchanging, eternal God, you compare it to our life as just temporary. It's fleeting. We cannot control our future. Reminds me, this passage in, in James reminds me of what the author of Ecclesiastes had to say. Twelve chapters in Ecclesiastes. We've been studying it with the young adult ministry. And in chapter 1, he kind of starts off the chapter with a really sobering statement. In verse 2, it says, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. And my translation is the NIV. I don't know what you have Some other translations don't use the word meaningless. They use the word vanity. 
this idea of plotting or planning in vain, but it's actually the Hebrew word that relates to the word vapor or mist in James. This idea that all of our plans are vapors. We cannot control them. And, and the author, the teacher in Ecclesiastes talks about all these different things that he has tried to understand, but he has found them all to be meaningless, all to be unable to be grasped. Things like wisdom is meaningless. Knowledge is meaningless. Pursuit of pleasures, possessions, accomplishments, labor and toil in life itself. It's like you work your entire life. You accumulate all this wealth, and then what happens? You die. <laughs> it's harsh reality. And the teacher says that is, it's all vanity. Because then sometimes we can leave our wealth to people who didn't even work hard. They didn't earn it themselves. That's messed up. All of my hard work goes down the toilet. But what's the takeaway as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes, this was written, it's included in our Bible for a purpose. And as the, the readers, the Israelites in ancient Israel are reading this, as you and I are reading this in modern day America, there is a takeaway. And here's what Pete Enns has to conclude. He says, The book of Ecclesiastes doesn't mask the reality, but neither does that reality have the final word. He says, keep being a faithful Israelite anyway. Continue on fearing and obeying God anyway. Reverence and obedience have always been and still are the mark of a faithful Israelite. Even though we don't know what our future holds, we can still be faithful to God. Other scriptures remind us of this reality and why presumption is a problem. In Proverbs chapter 27, verse 1, it says, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring. There's that word, boasting again. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Psalm 39, 5 says, You have made my days a mere handbreadth. The span of my years is as nothing before you. Everyone is but a breath, even those who seem secure. So our life is just a breath. It is going to vanish. It doesn't last here on this earth. But the reality is that's a universal truth. It's not just my life where I get frustrated with not knowing the future. And I compare myself to other people who I think they've got their lives put together. They've got their future all planned out. I get jealous. But the reality is they can't control their future either. In Matthew chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And Jesus is, is telling us, you can't control the future. You don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so every second you spend worrying about what happens tomorrow is a second that you have wasted today. And finally, James hits back on this topic early on in James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, this idea 
of presumption and that our life is just a myth. Uh, um, I'm sorry, a mist. He says, believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away, even while they go about their business. And James is saying, our wealth does not last. It's a vapor. You cannot control it in the way that our human, our brokenness would want to control it. And so as we assess the problem that we all face, we come to terms with the harsh reality of our world, James presents to us a solution. His solution is that we must always trust God in the midst of our unclear future. In verse 15, he, he commands us or he encourages us. He says, instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. If it is the Lord's will. How often do you say that when you're planning? How often, maybe you don't say that every time you're making a plan, but that's the attitude, that's the motivation of your heart. If the Lord wills. Heard that a lot, you know, from relatives in West Virginia. They would always say, Lord willing and the creek don't rise when they're making their plans. Okay, that's, that's good. They're acknowledging the Lord in the middle of, of their decision-making process. But these words aren't necessarily some like magic words or like incantations that you have to sprinkle in every time you're talking about future plans, but it is an attitude of the heart where you say, I, I know that I don't control the future. I'm not God. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, but I do trust God. And I believe that this is what God is calling me to do. We trust God in the middle of our unclear future. How can you work to cultivate that type of thinking in your own life, that kind of dependence on God in your own decision-making process? If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. That brings up kind of a big question for a lot, of, a lot of people. It's like, what is the Lord's will for my life? What is God calling me to do? We would love it if we had just detail after detail, you know, clear signal after clear signal. It would be so nice if God would actually tell us, hey, Adam, today or tomorrow, Go into this or that city, spend a year there, carry on your business and make money. Like, I love a good five-year plan where you can process things clearly. You can see what's going to happen, the light at the end of the tunnel. But I think God makes it more simpler for us. I don't care if you're a, a surgeon in here or a school teacher or a student or whatever God has called you to do as a profession I think he has the same will for you as he does the person next to you. It's what we've been talking about in James. It's putting God's word into practice no matter where you are. Hearing God's word and doing. Living your life and being obedient 
no matter what your context is. It's, it's marrying that idea of orthodoxy, right belief about God, with orthopraxy, right actions and right living. And it takes humility to do that. Why? Because we have to put aside our pride to trust God when we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We have to put aside our certainty. We have to put aside our control. If I have any Carrie Underwood fans in the room this morning. Okay, thank you, Sherry. I had a couple people like raise their hands in the first service, but Carrie Underwood had a song a couple years back, more than a couple, uh, Jesus Take the Wheel. Still not sure how I feel about the song. Not a huge country music fan, but I think I do like the analogy here. Jesus take the wheel because all of us, our human nature wants to be sitting in the driver's seat of our life, the driver's seat of our own destiny. But James reminds us we have no idea what's going to come around the next turn. Health diagnosis, relationship problems, career problems. We don't know what's going to happen. And when we get to those moments of panic, we say, Jesus, take the wheel. Like, that's a good thing. We say, I'm not in control anymore, Jesus. I am trusting you in the middle of this uncertainty. And so when we try to control the wheel on our own, that is a sign of this double-minded religion that James is railing against. That this isn't what God wants you to do. You don't trust him. You don't believe that he will come through for you or be present with you in the pain. But when we do surrender, complete surrender of our life is a sign of authentic faith. James says in chapter 3, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility of that comes from wisdom. Humility comes from wisdom. That's what we're seeking for. As believers, we want to be wise in our life and how we, how we approach God and faith. Humility comes from wisdom, but humility leads to surrender. Listen to what Doug Moo says. When we recognize who we are before God... Almighty, Creator, Sovereign, Eternal God, we, amidst, we will see the need to consider the Lord's will in everything we do. Everything that we do. And so this morning, I want to give you two examples from my own personal life. <laughs> and uh, the first example is me applying this passage, I think, pretty well. Pat on the back, Adam. Good job, me. I'm going to start out positive, but then we'll go to an example where I get this wrong. Where I have stopped trusting the Lord in the midst of uncertain circumstances. So the first example. I don't know, six, eight weeks ago in January, Kayla and I stood on this stage and we shared with you guys, our church family, we said, in April... We're going to be moving back to Ohio, and we're going to be pursuing, I'm going to be pursuing a career in healthcare chaplaincy, a new ministry opportunity. And it kind of sounds a little bit like, okay, Adam, are you 
you know, are you trying to plan this? Um, like the very first verse, James chapter 4, 13, we're going to go to this city for a year and we're going to do our business and make money. I'm not in this for the money. I'll just say that off the get-go. Uh, but I want to just let you guys know, I think you guys can see, and even the way that we shared it that weekend, that Kayla and I have been praying about this. We're humbling ourselves before the Lord, and this is what we feel like God is calling us to do. We're surrendering to Him, even when it's hard, even when it's difficult. We'll have to move across the country. We will miss you guys dearly. But if God is in control of our lives, we have no choice but to say, yes, God, we will obey you. We will follow you. But we do that out of humility. There are so many different things that could derail the process over the next couple months, but we still trust God in the middle of that uncertainty. Okay? Number two, here's the bad part. And uh, it has to do with COVID. It has to do with coronavirus. I'll confess to you guys that over the course of the past 12 months, I have stopped trusting God when it comes to our, our pandemic. There's been frustration that has, has been growing, like, God, why isn't this getting any better? God, why are friends and family still being, you know, diagnosed with COVID? Why is this still affecting the world in such a great way? And I start to lose trust in God. I start to grab a hold of the wheel and try and control things as much as I possibly can as a, as a human being in the middle of a once-in-a-century pandemic. <laughs> I start to make these plans, reminiscent of James, and say, I will not be going to this place or that place. And I will not go there for a determined amount of time until there's a, a vaccine or whatever. I start to make these plans and cut God out of that process. I started off trying to be obedient to God, trying to trust God. And when things didn't go the way that I wanted them to go, I lost some trust in God. There's a distrust there. And it's foolishness as we see in this passage where I have stopped trusting God. I've tried to control everything that happens. I've tried to make sure that my kids don't get sick, that I'm not passing things along to the people that around me that I love. And so not only do I confess to this, right, this problem of presuming things, trying to control things, cutting God out, I confess to what we talked about last week, judging others. It's easy to judge people with the pandemic, because you kind of sort yourself into different camps, and you say, why aren't they acting the way that I'm acting? Why don't they think about things the way that I'm thinking about things? And so, super judgy, judgy McJudgerson over here of me, and I, I do confess to that and apologize. But now, now it's your turn. I'm going to pass, pass the mic around this morning. Just joking. Uh, we will have a time to confess. Confession is good for the soul. And we're going to have a time to confess uh, between yourself and, and the Lord and see what God can do in and through that act of confession. So we've seen the problem that James has presented. 
We're tempted in arrogance to presume, to know and or control what our future holds. We've seen the reality that our future is unclear to us, but clear only to God. The solution that James says is we must always trust God in the midst of our unclear future. And the action, the call to action that he leaves us with in this passage is that we can trust God. We do that by acting in humble confidence in his will. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do it and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Here James introduces the sin of omission. It's a category all unto itself. It's different than sins of commission. I've got any salespeople in here, they're like, commission, I love commission. No, it's not that kind of commission. Sin of commission is when you commit an act that violates your relationship with God. A sinful act, a bad thing that you do. The sin of omission that James is talking about here in chapter 4 is knowing something that is good, being convicted in your spirit that the Holy, Holy Spirit is pushing me, urging me to do this. And you say, no, I, I'm out. I can't do that. For whatever reason, we make up excuses. I'm not equipped for that. Now's not the right time for that. This is not the right place for that. And I bet you can think of something right now that you're convicted by, something that God is calling you to do, has been calling you to do for some time, and you keep pushing it off. Maybe another time. Can't do it right now. I'll get around to doing it later. This is very, very convicting. At the same time, God wants us to sit in that conviction, but he doesn't want us to dwell in it. Because it can be easy to kind of take a legalistic course when it comes to sins of omission. I know the good that I'm supposed to do, but I don't do it. That's a sin, like, okay, so I watched an hour of Netflix instead of feeding the poor for an hour that day, or I went and played golf instead of spending more time in my devotions and prayer. Like You can really get nitpicky about these things, good that you are supposed to do, but you don't do it. And Satan wants to use this conviction to shame us and say, just because you failed at doing, fill in the blank, that you are a failure. But God wants to take our conviction and mold us and help us to grow closer to him. And so in this season, we're leading up to Easter. We're in the season of Lent. As we think about the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday and the resurrection on Easter Sunday. This is a great, a great season for self-reflection. And I want to encourage you to be reflective of how God is convicting you of different things. I think about my sin leading up to the cross because as the, the song goes, it was my sin that held him there. I was the reason why Jesus died on the cross. I was the reason why Jesus was betrayed by his friends, abandoned, and crucified. But the Bible says that we come to Jesus and we confess our sins. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So we're going to, to that end, celebrate communion together. I'm going to invite the band to come up, and we're going to, as the band is, is here, we're going to respond in worship, but we're going to receive communion together. This is another opportunity for us to spend time in self-reflection and spend some time in prayer and confessing, God, what are the sins that I am aware of, the sins that I have, I have done, I have committed, but what are the things that I have omitted in my life? as well. You are calling me to do something, to love God, love one another, love the world, but I have failed to act on that. We confess. We receive forgiveness. Communion shows us that we receive grace from the Lord. And then we can strive to obey Him going forward. We, we put it into practice. And so you can take out your elements right now. At the top, there's a little clear plastic piece that you can remove to get the wafer. Mine was stuck. As the band plays... We're going to spend some time in self-reflection. But let's take the elements together, starting with this, the bread, the body of Christ, which is broken for you on the cross. He went to the cross because of your sins and because of my sins. And Jesus said, whenever you eat of this, do this in remembrance of me. So let's eat together. This cup represents the blood of Christ, which is poured out for you and I. It's a new covenant that is sealed in our hearts because of what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus said, whenever you drink of this, do this in remembrance of me. Let's drink together. God, this morning... We respond in worship to you. We are so grateful for what you have done for us. God, that you forgive us of our sins. You purify us from all unrighteousness. And God, you walk with us each and every day of our lives that we don't know what tomorrow will hold, but we trust you. No matter where it is that we're walking, good times, bad times, God, you are present with us. We acknowledge that this morning. And we just say thank you. I pray for us in this room as we prepare to sing another song together, God, that you can meet us here, that you can... Uh, bless us with your forgiveness that you can show us that God that you love us no matter what it is that we have done and God help us 
to act in obedience to you, to put what we have learned today into practice. It's not easy. We need your help. So we humbly ask that you lead us and you guide us each and every day of our lives. That you take the wheel. God, and we will follow you wherever it is that you lead. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. I'd like to ask everyone to stand with us here at the end if you're able. You are loved. God loves you. No matter what it is you have done, whatever it is you feel guilt for, shame for, convicted of, God wants to take that and help you grow to be more like Him so we can love God, love one another, and love the world. Not just say it, but do it. Put it into practice. So that's our call. That's our challenge this week. How are we going to act on our faith like James challenges us to do? Uh, A point of business before we leave this morning. We've got voting out in the lobby for our elder nominating committee. If you are a member, you can vote. In-person voting will remain open for approximately 10 minutes after this service ends, but there is an online vote that will be open until 5 p.m. tonight. If you need prayer, we have a prayer table over. As you exit, there's a table, and we would encourage you, write down your prayer requests, and we would be grateful to bring those before the Lord to come alongside you in prayer. Thank you guys for being here this morning. It's great to worship with you, and we'll see you again next time. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.